everyone. Welcome to your episode 315 of the Ad Percussion Podcast. My name is Ben Charles, and with me, as always, are my lovely co-host, Ksenia Kaminovich. Hey, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We're supposed to get some weather up here in North Texas this week, but hopefully down in South Texas, you're safe. Yeah, I got a snowstorm on Thursday, but oh, I think you're... Yeah, I think you're fine. Yeah. Uh, luckily, it shouldn't be nearly as bad as the one last year, so <laughs> fingers crossed. And Carly Vina. Hey, Ben. How's it going? I'm doing well. How's the, uh, how's the dog mom life? <laughs> we're going lots of walks. <laughs> yeah. We were, uh, we were talking in our little podcast group chat earlier about work-life balance, and Carly was saying that having a dog is great because you, you go on walks four times a day. It's, it's a nice responsibility to have, it sounds like. It's balance. <laughs> well and so, it's something like it's so easy to be like oh i don't have time for that but then yeah, you, now you do to. you gotta find time for it yeah you either have time for a walk or time to clean the carpet a or b it's your choice <laughs> <laughs> well if you're listening to this episode on its release date it is february 10th carly what happened in history on february 10th yeah, February 10th is a good one, actually. On February 10th, 1878, it was the world premiere of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. So that's pretty cool. Um, it was premiered at a Russian Musical Society concert in Moscow. And actually, initial critical reaction to this work was um, not so great, a little unfavorable. There was a reviewer from the New York Post who, who this is what they said, um, it's one of the most thoroughly Russian, i.e. semi-barbaric compositions ever heard in the city. If Tchaikovsky had called his symphony a sleigh ride through Siberia, no one would have found this title inappropriate. Yikes. Oh, <laughs> so problematic. <laughs> well, that's one. I think actually this one's um, even funnier. There was a reviewer in Germany who wrote, the composer's twaddle disturbed my mood. The confusion in brass and the abuse of the kettle drums drove me away. So I don't know. Anybody know what twaddle means? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it's negative, but <laughs> doesn't sound good. You can listen for the twaddle next time you hear Czech four. Um, oh dear. <laughs> but of course, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony did eventually find its way into our beloved orchestral repertoire, um, despite these uh, humorously negative reviews. So I thought I'd share with you a little bit of background on the symphony. Um, around the time that Tchaikovsky was writing the Fourth Symphony, there was a woman named Nadezhda von Meck, who was the wealthy widow of a Russian railroad magnate. Um, and she started sending Tchaikovsky a, like a regular stipend that allowed him to stop teaching for the time being. And he started devoting himself full time to composition. Um, and the the Fourth Symphony is dedicated to her because her stipend is, I assume, part of what made it possible. Um, after the premiere on February 10th, 1878 of the Fourth Symphony, she wrote to Tchaikovsky to ask if the symphony was pro programmatic, kind of what's the story behind this. Um, and he responded by a letter with the following. He said, usually when this question is put to me about a symphonic work, my answer is none. And then he goes on to say, in our symphony, it is possible to express in words what it is trying to say, and to you, and only to you, dot, dot, dot. And then he goes on in his, in his letter to describe the meaning behind several of the passages throughout the symphony. So here's a little bit about the opening. The symphony opens with a strong motif in the horn that represents fate. 
Um, here's what, what Tchaikovsky said about the fate. That fateful force which prevents the impulse to happiness from attaining its goals, which jealously ensures that peace and happiness shall not be complete and unclouded, which hangs above the head like the sword of Democles, unwaveringly, constantly poisoning the soul. It is an invincible force that can never be overcome, merely endured hopelessly. So it's a little dark. Um, I'll skip now to the, the fourth movement because partially that's, that's the one that we tend to study and play and practice a whole lot. But if you wanna read more about what, what Tchaikovsky said about all these different, you know, the, the melodic themes, um, you can check out program notes that are on the Houston Symphony website. It's super interesting. So here's a little bit about the fourth movement. The finale begins with a fortissimo rush of notes at breakneck speed. These musical fireworks conjure images of a public festival. Tchaikovsky says, if within yourself you find no reasons for joy, then look at others. Picture the festive merriment of ordinary people. This wild celebratory music alternates with a Russian folk song, which is called In the Field a Birch Tree Stood, in which a married woman sings to her lover. And this revelry continues until the fate motif of the first movement makes a dramatic reappearance. Tchaikovsky says, hardly have you managed to forget yourself and to be carried away by the spectacle of the joys of others, then irrepressible fate appears again and reminds you of yourself. Gradually, the festive music returns, and of this, Tchaikovsky says, but others do not care about you, and they have not noticed that you are solitary and sad. Oh, how they are enjoying themselves, how happy they are that all their feelings are simple and straightforward. Reproach yourself and do not say that everything in this world is sad. Joy is a simple but powerful force. Rejoice in the rejoicing of others. To live is still possible. Um, so later, this is what he wrote to um, basically his patroness, later to his student, uh, who's also a composer, Sergei Taneyev, Tchaikovsky reportedly wrote, of course my fourth symphony has a program, but of a kind impossible to formulate in words. Was it not the purpose of the symphony as a musical form to express that for which there are no words, but which surges from the soul and demands expression? So later he kind of, you know, was, was publicly walking it back and not really um, expressing that there was a program for this. There have been a lot of historians and biographers of Tchaikovsky who have projected that the theme of fate in his fourth symphony actually relates to his struggle to accept his homosexuality. Um, but then there are others who say that the fourth symphony was just born out of this depression that he was in during that time in his life um, and not necessarily related to his sexuality. Um, regardless, it is a hugely expressive and effective work of art. So uh, go take a listen to Check Four today if you are interested. That was so awesome. semi-barbaric. That was horrible. All these things that he talked about, existential crises and not trying to be a solipsist and the, the sword of Damocles, that's so barbaric. It's so educated. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. We need to find out who that reviewer was, though. Right. <laughs> Knock on their door. And uh, for anyone in, uh, curious, I looked up twaddle. The definition is trivial or foolish speech or writing nonsense. So um, yeah, actually, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony was the first symphony I ever performed uh, on timpani in an orchestra, uh, which is not an easy start. The first movement is pretty tricky, um, but I, I love this piece. The last movement's one of my favorite finales of a symphony. And if anyone's unfamiliar, the third movement, the scherzo, is called Pizzicato Ostinato. 
And I, I think it's the whole movement, or at least the majority of the movement, the, the strings are all pizzicato. And a lot of the time, the violins will hold their violin in guitar position, which is kind of cute. <laughs> and just a question, did you abuse the kettle drums? Uh, I, I, I hope not, <laughs> but it's entirely possible that I did. Well, thank you so much, Carly. Let's get on to introducing our guest for the day. Our guest today is David Harvey. David is a marimbas educator and percussion historian. He has interviewed many mallet percussionists from the early, excuse me, early 20th century, beginning in the 1970s, and has an extensive collection of memorabilia about mallet percussion history, including instruments, recordings, scores, press releases, and letters. So welcome, David Harvey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, David, I thought we would start out by just talking about, and I think maybe this is an obvious question or an obviously answered question, but why do you think that it's uh, valuable for students to study percussion history? Well, the thing is, uh, music has a history, and to understand the music that you're playing, uh, understanding the history puts the music in context. So, uh, you know, learning music history is a big thing. Learning musical style and performance is a big thing. There's a lot to learn, right? Um, it's not just showing up and, and making noise on an instrument. You need to make music. And so you have to learn how to play your instrument, right? Without, without proficiency on an instrument, how are you going to make music or your voice, whatever? There's always technique involved. But then at some point, it's time to stop playing an instrument or using your voice and make music. Right. And so, you know, just like the background that Carly shared about Chike 4, it's like, wow, that kind of, you know, Chike 4 to us today is old stuff. Right. It's sentimental. It's romantic. It's a war horse in the symphonic repertoire. We've all probably heard it in our profession over and over, like since childhood. But to, to hear that review, to hear that analysis that was contemporary, that that puts that in perspective. That was a revolutionary sound when it was premiered, right? So uh, Busoni, the, the, the lead Italian pianist was saying that, um, you know, music gets played for centuries and it builds up the dust of, something like the, the dust of tradition and, and the dust of, you know, typical practices. And, and he, he thinks that the idea of performing is to go back to the source, back to when it was written. And, uh, and music that was revolutionary when it was premiered should sound revolutionary today in the way that you approach it. Now, you know, that's a little hard to define, like, well, what does that really mean? But, but to get back to the question you were asking about, what's the value of music history? It puts music in perspective. And, and so uh, I'll, I'll give you like just a random example that's not really mallet percussion, but it can be, um, you know, people play Bach string music on marimba, right? Okay, and uh, one of the movements that you hear, you know, time to time kind of regularly is the presto in G minor from the violin sonata in G minor. And, and um, when Bach wrote that, late Baroque era, uh, the, the term presto did not mean what it became to mean in the later eras of the, the 19th century, which meant very rapidly, essentially as rapidly as you want to play. Uh, in Bach's time, presto did not mean that. So it basically meant perpetual motion, moto perpetual. They didn't have the term in box time, moto perpetual, but they used the term presto to mean that. So if, if you see the term presto in a box score, it's typically in a, in a, in a movement like the presto in G minor, 1006, where uh, 1001, where uh, it's all 16th notes. So he's telling you as, as the composer with the one simple word presto, do not play rubato in this movement. That's what he's telling you. 
do not play. But now in 2022, what do we hear? We, we hear people playing that as though the term presto in that score means what it meant 150 years later, which is played as fast as you want. And so, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an idea of music history matters when you want to make music. You know, if you want to play marimba and if you want to use that piece to show off, great. I mean, that's one thing you can do with the marimba. But if you want to play Bach and you want to use that movement, you have to have some context to play it. Now, another, I'm, I'm going to, I know this is a run on answer. That my last thing I want to say is the other thing you might want to do with that piece is do a harmonic analysis because that is strictly a melody with no harmonies written down. But if you learn the harmonies by an analyzing the harmonic content, then you're going to understand the phrasing and certain, certain phrases and certain uh, cadences and certain dissonant harmonies. So, you know, studying the history and the style of the music always matters, right? So, yeah, I was, I was actually thinking today about at the University of Miami, uh, Ross Harbaugh, who was the cello professor, taught once every few semesters uh, a seminar on Bach cello suites. And I, I took that class and yeah, like harmonic analysis was a, was a big piece of that class. So Correct. wonderful. Correct. Well, in terms of percussion history, percussion is like revered as like the oldest instrument, cavemen beating on rocks and things. Uh, but it seems like pianists and violinists especially have volumes and volumes of books about their, their instrument's history. And as percussionists, we have very little. Uh, the ones that I can think of that come to mind are the James Blades percussion instruments in their history book, uh, which Norm Weinberg with his uh, VAP or VAP Media, I don't know, which is the correct pronunciation, has, has made that available digitally. The Rebecca Kite book, which I think is also available through Norm Weinberg's company. Uh, David, your percussion history course, the Center for Mallet Percussion Research, a few dissertations, and then after that, it sort of falls off. And if you were keeping track of that list, there, that's only two actual long-form books. So, David, what are some resources that you think people should be aware of if they're interested in studying percussion history? Yeah, so all those that you mentioned are excellent. I think that um, the Center for Mallet Percussion Research in Kutztown, in, at Kutztown University, uh, they're still getting up to speed there. They're, they're having a, a very exciting project going on right now, which is uh, a building is in construction now, will be available sometime in 2022 that will be devoted exclusively to the Center for Mallet Percussion Research. So this is the first time I'm aware of in history that a facility has been specifically designed, engineered, and built for percussion history and for percussion research. So that's very exciting. So that means that percussion history is becoming institutionalized at the academic level, right? So uh, I think that uh, because that hasn't happened yet, the building is not there. Uh, the Center for Mallet Percussion Research isn't really up and running at 100% capacity. They're, they're doing great things. Uh, they've been around since, I think, 2015. Uh, and they've, they've done some great things and they're going to continue to do great things. But that's going to become, I think, that research center in Kutztown, Pennsylvania is going to become a, a global focus as far as a resource, as far as programs that they're going to offer, uh, live events, research, uh, the digitizing all the information there so that it can be a, a, an online global resource. So we're coming into like a new era almost with that. Uh, beyond that, there are other online resources for recordings. Uh, for, for instance, my thing is marimba and xylophone. That's what I play, I play marimba. And I do marimba and xylophone history, you know, education. So in that regard, uh, there's a couple of tremendous uh, websites for 
vintage recordings from pre-World War II, which is really amazing that those recordings exist. They've been digitized. Just with a click of a button, you can, you can listen to them. One is the uh, Discography of American Historical Recordings. It's, it's just a website. And they specialize in disc recordings from pre-World War II. And you could literally, if you go to DAHR, Discography of American Historical Recordings, uh, dahr.com, I believe, uh, then, then you can listen to literally hundreds, hundreds of recordings of the xylophone and marimba from pre-World War II. It's amazing. Uh, another very similar site is the University of California at Santa Barbara, which has a similar discographical site, which technically it's for cylinder recordings, which is a different type of uh, recording that predated discs before they even invented a flat round disc for a phonograph record. They had cylindrical phonograph records. Well, this uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, has an extensive collection of thousands and thousands of cylinder recordings, which date from the 1890s to the 1920s. And that site includes probably a couple hundred recordings of the xylophone. So you can literally, with just two websites, have more recordings than you ever want to hear from, from that era of mallet percussion. Uh, so that's important. And then beyond, beyond uh, you know, the Center for Mallet Percussion Research, beyond books, beyond uh, you know, recordings and so forth, uh, uh, there's networking, right? So we have Facebook groups. So I have I have my own group, which on Facebook, uh, which is Marimba and Xylophone History. So there's that. We have more than five thousand members worldwide. There are other Facebook groups like Vintage uh, Mallet Instruments. Uh, Danielle Squires has a wonderful group, Orchestral Percussion Talk, right? And uh, that gets in a lot of times. They they talk about history uh, when they're talking when someone's playing a particular piece in an orchestra. They'll go into the history of the you know the New York Phil did it this way and the you know, and Saul and Arnie, you know, and they did it this way. So they're very good with history over there, even though it's not specifically a history group. Uh, so, you know, networking, using the internet. But I have to say, that's like the, the, the concrete answer to your question. What are you, you know, what are the resources? And I'm going to kind of addend your question a little bit to say, beyond the resources, what do you do with the resources as a student, right? Um, when I was learning to play marimba and then... Mm, should I say it, the 1970s, okay. Uh, I, uh, in the 1970s, there were no resources for the marimba. And, uh, and one thing I did was I started finding old recordings of George Hamilton Green, okay. And even though I played marimba, not xylophone at the time, you know, uh, there were these recordings of music on the keyboard that I like to play and learn and so forth. And uh, I actually would uh, transcribe some of those recordings because I didn't have the sheet music for them. So I would take uh, like a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and I would record the, the phonograph record onto the reel-to-reel -reel tape because on the reel tape it had multiple speed settings. And then I would slow it down and I would write out that transcription and I would learn it. And I got to be that, like I would learn that music so thoroughly that if George Hamlin Green played a role on a certain note in that piece, I literally knew how many strokes were in that role on that particular half note or in that particular dotted eighth note. And I would play back that recording by myself, literally, literally with the same number of strokes in the tremolo or the roll to get that certain open, he had a, he had a kind of an open, uh, loose style of rolling that sounded really good on the rose. Anyway, the point being, uh, you know, it's what you do with the material. You have to study it and you, and you have to assimilate it. And you have to take all these historical situations and, that happened. And if you study them, uh, then there's that expression that we use uh, connecting the dots. You know, eventually 
you have to have a picture, you know? So you see this little snapshot, this little sliver over here that happened in this decade and this performer. And then eventually there's enough dots that you can connect them and you have now a view of history. And recently uh, you mentioned Rebecca Kite's wonderful book uh, you know, uh, on Kekoabe and the history of the five octave marimba, the development of the five octave marimba. And one of the things when I reviewed that book online was I said that not only was that book copiously researched, but it was very clear from the dialogue, from, from the contents, the way Rebecca presented that material, that Rebecca had connected the dots in her own mind, that she had become an expert, that she had a very cognizant and clear view of that history. So she was able to present it well. So that's my point. Um, I, ha I have a Facebook friend uh, who belongs to my, my uh, Facebook group. And he was asking me online, you know, uh, do you have this recording by George Green? And I'm looking for this other recording by George. Yeah, sure, no problem. Here you go. Here's an MP3. And, and I said to him uh, in chat, I said, you know, uh, I actually transcribe those. If you want, I can just send you PDFs, you know? And uh, he said to me, uh, no, no, please don't send me the PDFs. I want to transcribe it myself because I'll learn it better. I was like, wow, great answer, like great attitude. And there's no doubt that he's going to learn it. Like, like he said, he's going to learn it well. He, he would rather immerse himself in it. So that's my little, uh, so I, I think I answered your question, but I also addended it to another, you know, like part 1A. So I, I do think it's important that you study it. And, and if you're playing an instrument, I get it. Like playing an instrument, just playing the instruments, a full-time gig just practicing and learning and developing and the gear and the gigs and the teachers and the schedule and, you know, paying the bills and walking the dog. Right. And so uh, it's a lot. And, but, you know, you have to have a context getting back to the beginning of the conversation today with me, uh, you have to have a context for that. So study, you know, the resources are there. This is 2022, you know, the world of uh, this is the global information age. There's no excuse to not have access to, to information or data. It's what you do with it. So. That's uh, so beautifully said and so encouraging to hear that there's a human being out there who is given the opportunity to take a shortcut and they said, no, thank you. I'd rather take the road myself and right. figure it out. It's amazing. Yeah. Right. So that tells me that that person is going to have that ethic about his life. He's yes. Gonna that approach to, to managing his life. Right. So that's good. Exactly. That is great. So as someone who uh, so obviously loves the art form and is so dedicated to sort of remembering and, and documenting every element of it in history. What about your personal history? Do you remember the first time that you saw five octave marimba? Yeah, I do. And uh, it was funny because it was Nancy Zeldsman. And this was in the early, early 1980s. I want to say 1983. Uh, but it might have been it might have been. No, 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 it was not not it was like later in the, it might have been 1988. But anyway, but it was around that time a little fuzzy on the exact date. And uh, she was doing a, a, a recital in Cambridge and we had gone to school together, Nancy and I, at New England, New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. And uh, she had a four and a third octave Musser M250, pretty standard for our generation at that time, that she had uh, an ex a bass extension added to. And so that was a five octave instrument by, you know, it was like a Franken instrument, right? It's like, so it was the first, but it was the first five octave keyboard. I mean, I had seen Keiko Abe play a, a, a performance in Carnegie Hall in New York in the eighties, and she was still playing a four and a half octave instrument at that time. She wasn't using the five octave. So the very first five octave was Nancy Zelsman's, which wasn't even 
designed as a five octave instrument. So it was it was even later than that, 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 that you know, and, and the Yamaha was the first one I saw. So yeah. I put out the five octave. That was the first one I saw. It's like wow, you don't have to have an extension anymore. Like you know, so again, I you know, I I've, so I think I'm dating myself quite a bit today. So so it's just gonna be that way, I guess. It is what it is, right? So I was I was gonna say there are pictures of Keiko Abe with that extension that you're describing. Yeah, it's like a roll up little thing they stuck at the bottom of the instrument and it like it right. seems so foreign to us today like why didn't you just build it yeah but that's right. how they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah well you know there was a thing and, I, and to, to answer that question why didn't they just go with five octaves i gotta tell you i think the thing that, that was the issue there is that um lower bass notes on the marimba have resonators that are too long to be straight because then, then the keyboard would be up at you know up at your head level right so I think the uh, the problem and why that never really became common until when it did uh, was 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 a tech manufacturing issue. How do you bend pipes? How do you bend metal pipes? And uh, so that's I think that's what held it up as long as it did. Interesting. Yeah, it's so cool to think about. I mean, to be reminded that what we play, what we what we know as standard now, is not that old. Right, exactly, and and I have to remember that too today too when I uh, when I interact with people at, at, on Facebook, um, you know, I, I literally uh, you know it's not a day that goes by that I don't get contact from people all over the world about the subject. Believe it or not, I mean, I mean, no one's more surprised than me. Uh, you know, when I when I decided to make a Facebook group, um, I was already into like uh, at, at that time there was still CDs were viable. Like now we're, we're, now it's all playlists, but. But like I produce CDs and stuff like that. And uh, I was just starting to think, you know, I really need to share this. I'm getting a little older and, um, and I've got quite a bit of information now. And I really need to share it with the next generation. That's, that was all I was thinking. Like, I just got to get it. And I thought, although I was convinced, like nobody will be interested in it, but I still have an obligation, you know. So I'll, I'll make a Facebook group and maybe I'll get like maybe 50 people who, you know, might also be interested in this this very niche topic. And like, no, it's like, like there's a generation out there uh a couple actually a couple generations behind me that just don't don't have that background work taught it in a systemic way in an organized way and so they're very interested in learning and uh so yeah I'm, I'm, it's yeah it's kind of surprising but it's it's a good good thing right so well i want to say congratulations on the facebook group because i think it's you know amazing and so i i learned so much from your group and from the other groups that you mentioned too you know i, I think when those were first starting to crop up, you know, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, I was kind of like Facebook, like, what am I going to learn for like, you know, Facebook's for fun and whatever. Um, but I, I mean, I refer students to stuff I find in those groups all the time. It's just so valuable. Right. And one thing I, I, I uh, when people join the group, I give them a welcome message where I suggest to them that they use the search function because the group's been online now for five years or more, probably more than that. And, uh, and there's at this point there's a wealth of posts everybody's been posting for years now so you drop in a you know a topic into the search function and there's a lot of information there you know if you just wait for the feed to come that's fine you know not you know you can do that uh, but you can also use it as a, as, a, as a resource tool by searching so there's a lot there i was just going to add a, a couple things um you we had briefly mentioned the uh Center for Mallet Percussion Research, uh, and episode 
310, five episodes ago, we had Frank Kumor, who's the, the sort of head of that project. Um, so if you're interested, anyone's interested in that, that's a, a good episode to check out. And also to Ksenia's question of when's the first time you saw a five octave marimba, it's it's always funny to me that like we think of the five octave marimba as give or take 1980, Keiko Abe helped Yamaha develop it and then other companies followed suit shortly after. Um, but actually like way back when, uh, if you are watching on YouTube, you can see this, uh, there were very large instruments and this instrument here is a marimba xylophone or xylophone marimba. I can't remember the what marketing name marketing name they used for it, but this is in the uh, Sousa archives at the University of Illinois, and it looks like it was actually restored in 2015 by uh, Century Mallet in Chicago. Um, but it's a five octave; it's F to F instrument. So the modern five octave instrument is yeah, it debuted around 1980, but there were extended range instruments available uh, many, many years ago. So, um, but moving forward, David, uh, beginning in the 1970s, you interviewed many early 20th century mallet percussionists, including some of those involved in the Musser Marimba orchestras. What inspired you to take this step way back when? And were there any favorite stories, be they informational or just amusing that you uncovered? Oh yeah, so why did I do that? Um... You know, originally I was collecting, uh, in, in the very first year I started playing the marimba, uh, I also started like researching the history of it. And it was because I was trying to get sheet music to play on the marimba that was written for the instrument. And a lot of that was xylophone music from pre-World War II, but there was also Musser marimba music and other, other music for the marimba. And so I was trying to get that music and none of it had been republished at that point, reprinted, you know. So in order to find that music, I had to go to older people. I was a teenager at the time. I had to go to older, older percussionists uh, and say, do you have any, any old marimba xylophone music? And um, usually these percussionists were, were orchestral people, guys or gals who had orchestra gigs because uh, at that time there was no marimba majors in school and the marimba scene hadn't blown up into what it is today. Nobody just played marimba at that, nobody. Like Nancy Zelzman and I might've been it, you know? as far as people that just want to play the marimba. So that was my, the start of me socially networking in the 70s was to find sheet music to play on the instrument. And that meant uh, a lot of the people that had that music were people who were either older than me or even people who had played the music prior to World War II. And, and I would always ask, you know, who else do you know? Is there anyone out? Do you have a phone number? Because at that time, there was no cell phones, no internet. Uh, you know, boy, I really sound like, like a grandfather right now. I'm not a grandfather, but I think I sound like one today for some reason, but, but you asked about my youth. So, uh, so, uh, so that's, that's how it started. And then, uh, and then I had a couple like kind of lucky breaks where a couple of the people that I contacted had lists of people, names and phone numbers and addresses. And they gave me like, oh, oh where do you, oh, I'll give it this guy. You should definitely call Hal Trummer over at Deegan because he was a sales manager for 40 years and he can tell you a lot of people. And then another fellow was this uh, elderly gentleman at the time, Bradley Spinney, who was a 1930s New York gigging guy on xylophone and, and drums. And, and he gave me, oh, you should call Sammy Herman. Here's his phone number. And then you should call this guy, Salve Gavicchio. He, you know, so, so I just kind of was looking for sheet music and then I just started networking. And, um, and in a little bit of a broader sense, uh, you know, when I started playing the marimba, the very first day, literally, I'm not making the, the very first day I played the marimba, I said, that's, that's it. That's what I'm doing with my life. Um, I, was, I was a teenager and, as, and I came from a musical family. I have another sister 
who's a professional uh, musician, lifelong professional uh, pianist, uh, conductor, arranger. And um, my parents were both music musicians. And so uh, I played piano when I was very young. I played drums when I was very young. And then when I had my first marimba lesson, uh, I knew the keyboard because it was the same keyboard layout as a piano. And I knew the hammering action because I had been doing drums before that. So the very first time I played the marimba, I actually was able to read music and play something on it. You know, with my teacher, I was had a teacher. And so I was like, that's it, I'm doing it. And then um, I was like, you know, a happy kid who just found something he loved, right? Like it was nothing special. It's just like, that's what happens, right? And uh, if you're lucky, you find something you love to do. And um, and so I would hang around with other musicians or, and, and then people would say to me, oh, you're a musician. It could be an adult talking to me, could be a, a pianist or a drummer talking to me. And and, and they'd say, what do you play? I said, I play the marimba. And I'd be all excited about it. And they would just get this look on their face, like, like as if I had just said something in Latin, you know? And then, and then the question would come, what's a marimba? I'm like, well, it's like a big xylophone. And then, then the same look, like I had just said something in Greek. And I would say xylophone, that's a big keyboard with wooden notes and you hit it with, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, uh, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't like that. It's like, oh, if, if somebody said, what do you play? Oh, I play the piano. Oh, great. They would never say, uh, get a weird face and say, did you say piano? How do you say that? What's a, what's a piano, you know? And, and so it made me feel like the thing that I love to do didn't matter as much as the, the, all the other musicians I knew. And I hung around, you know, hundreds, of, that's all I did, I hung around with musicians, I was, I was into music, right? And it made me feel like my marimba thing didn't matter as much as all of their things. And I didn't like that. So I just wanted to learn everything I could about it and see if there was, you know, I was already collecting music just to play. I was already kind of networking with with other people, most of whom were older and a lot of them from an older generation just to find music. And then I said, you know what, I want to kind of prove to myself or learn, you know, my, my instrument must matter too. It must have a history. And so I got to tell you, like today in 2022, uh, uh, it's astounding the history that the marimba and xylophone have. And the only difference I think in, in the viability, okay, of that history is that the marimba uh, was documented later, like a hundred years later than the violin or the piano, okay? When I was a student, because I'm just, I'm just a curious guy in general, right? Uh, I read all these biographies of Chrysler on the violin, Rubinstein on the piano, Busoni on the piano, uh, biographies about Bach, Bach's own theoretical writings, right? I just wanted to learn all of that stuff, right? So that, that stuff was written, you know, hundred years ago, there was a complete history of the violin and the, and the great tradition of the great pianist, you know? And, uh, and because the mallet instruments came 100, 150 years later, uh, I'm just doing that work now today, okay? And other people before me have done, I didn't start it. There are people who have been doing like doctoral theses on the marimba and Musser's groups, you know, 25 years ago. And I have books by Frank McCallum and, and other people, uh, the book of the marimba. So it's not like I'm like the first person to do it. I'm not saying that at all. There've been a lot of dedicated people who have done that, but it hasn't reached a point where it's about to reach or it's kind of currently coming to where people documented the histories of the violin and the piano a hundred years ago. So hopefully, hopefully, I don't know if I'll see it, but 50 years from now, when someone says I play the marimba, there won't be that look of the other person saying, oh, you know, right? So, <laughs> so that's, 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 you know, the, the long and short of it. I do have like, I mean, a lot of stories. I won't get into them because this we have a, a limit here. I'll just tell you one. Um, 
again, I was a teenager. I was in my first maybe two or three years of playing the marimba. And my father took our car to get like an oil change or something. And his mechanic, he'd been going to for years. And this guy who was the mechanic, uh, his name, the mechanic, well, not my father, the mechanic was George Dodlin. And you're going to have to remember that name. That's why I'm telling this story, George Dodlin. So uh, this guy, George Dolan, at that time in the 70s was elderly. He could have been retired by that point, but I think he just kept the garage going to have something to do every day. You know, he wasn't particularly active with it. And my father and him were kind of buddies. Like, you know, my father would go get coffees and my father would go for an oil change and come back three hours later. That's what I'm saying, right? So, <laughs> so, like, so this guy, George Dolan, knew my family, didn't really know us, but like through my father, he knew. So one day my father's there and he said, I wasn't there, but he, George Dolan says to my father, oh, how's, how's your son doing? And my father was like, oh, you know, he plays the marimba now. Like that's all he wants to do all day long at the marimba, this, the, you know. So George Dolan says to my dad, he goes, oh, uh, when I was a kid, I played the xylophone, you know, and I still have a, a method book. So, you know, uh, tell your son, you know, tell David, if he wants this book, he can have it. I think I still got it, you know. So my father comes home, he's like, hey, you know, I was talking to George Dolan, he has a, he has a xylophone book, you want it? I goes, yeah, sure, you know, great, I'm all about that, you know. Uh, I already had a little bit of a collection of sheet music, and so, like, you know, I don't know, sometime later, my father went back, and he comes home with George Hamilton Green's elementary instructor for the xylophone. All right, nice, you know, so I get this book, and I, I, George Hamilton Green, I knew who that guy was, right? So this is pretty cool, and I look through the pages, and you can see the dates from the 1930s, when George Dodlin, remember that name, George Dodlin was taking his lessons and his teacher was writing in the dates, you know, it was like June 7th, 1936, you know, or whatever. Okay, great. So that's a nice little story. But um, I told you that story so that I can tell you another one. So, so, so remember the name, George Dodlin. So now 20 years later, after that, 20 years later, uh, I contacted uh, a member of George Hamilton Green's family. I actually contacted like, believe it or not, like every surviving member of, of George Hamilton Green's extended family, like many people in that family. And one of those persons said to me, uh, oh, I have, you know, I have, uh, I'm a, um, let's just say George Hamilton Green's uh, sheet music. I have quite a bit of his sheet music. You know, would you like to come visit me and see this music? I said, Is that a trick question? Like, yeah, give me the address. I'm there, right? So, so I go visit this person and, um, and this person says to me, would you like to see, you know, his his music I, yeah so so this this relative takes out a stack you know like a stack of sheet music that was george hamilton green's personal copies of all his music all the ragtime music that he wrote all the classical music that he wrote Vals Berlante, the, the the caprice Valsant, all the the pop music that had been published by carl fisher and so forth that had not been sold was in mint condition mint 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 condition not a not a wrinkle not a not a, a, a tear not a pencil mark nothing right so I'm like a kid on Christmas morning, you know, whatever, a kid in a candy store, great, Christmas on a cracker, this is, you know, so I very, and I'm very reverently, I don't want to like accidentally turn a page too fast and tear it or something, I'm like, you know, this is like the holy grail, right, so, so I go through one piece, page by page, I go to the next piece, I go to the next piece, kind of slowly enjoying it, you know, and every time I go through a piece of this music, I, uh, I, turn it over face down because I'm so reverent. I, I don't want to get the order of the stack like out of order. I want to be polite to my host, right? And so I figure when I'm all done, I'll just flip the stack over. It's, I, I was a good, you know, steward of this, you know, right? So I get, I'm halfway through or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm going through the stack. And as I turn one over, I'm done with it. Now I turn one over and all, the only mark in that entire stack, 
the only pencil mark in that entire stack on the back of that piece of music, it says, what does it say? Dodlin. And there's a phone number that I recognize as a Lowell, Massachusetts phone number because I, I recognize the, the exchange, right? And I'm like, whoa, like, like mine's blown. Like, like the only, literally, I'm not, like the only mark on that entire stack of music was the name Dodlin and a Lowell phone number. So obviously like, uh, well, not obvious, but I'll explain it. Like George Hamlin Green in the 1930s had a teaching studio in New York City. He had like just like tons and tons of students and he also self-published music. And so this guy, George Dodlin and Lowell in the 1930s was taking lessons and his teacher told him, get this elementary method book by George Hamlin Green. And so one day I'm guessing, right? Like George Dodlin called George Hamlin Green. Hey, you know, my teacher said, I need to get this book and can I buy it? You know, how much does it cost? And George Hamlin Green was busy. He said, hold on, what's your name? Oh, George Dodlin and George Dodlin, George Green maybe didn't need to write the word George, because it's his first, and he just wrote on dog. Uh, let, me, let me see if I have that in stock, I'll call you back, you know? So like, wow, and that was the, so that, so that, that, that doesn't happen every day, right? So. <laughs> well, it's funny, your, your story about wanting, like, you know, why don't people know what a marimba is? That's, I think, a battle that many of us still fight today. But if you've ever seen any marketing materials for Malatech, uh, Lee Howard Stevens is rightfully not afraid to proclaim that he was hailed as the world's greatest classical marimbas by Time magazine. And if you go, you can Google and find the article from 1988. And the article, it is positive. It's, it's about Lee Howard Stevens and portrays him in a positive light. But it's maybe not the most reverent article that it sounds like it would be. And I'd like to just read the first paragraph of the article. It says, first of all, the marimba is not a dance like the mambo, nor is it a folk band like a mariachi, nor should it be confused with maracas, those hollow gourds filled with dry seeds that shake, rattle, and roll south of the border. Most audiences could not pick it out of a percussion lineup, and concert managers flee at the very mention of its name. For Lee Howard Stevens, to be the world's greatest classical marimbas must sometimes seem a dubious achievement. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, it's kind of like Carly's article in the Tchaikovsky. It's like, I, it's like I, it's, it is a compliment technically, but it's maybe not the compliment that it, that it sounds like. It's in, a backhanded in, one. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Lee, Lee did a, a, a Pasek uh, recital when Pasek was in New York City in 1979. Uh, and that recital was at Town Hall in New York. And I, I went there with a lot of people, you know, uh, in, in the Northeast went to that performance. Nice, nice recital. And I remember in the reception line afterwards, Lee making a maraca joke, actually. Um, you know, he was talking to like a, some, I think it was like somebody who knew, brought somebody who he didn't know, who didn't know what the marimba was. And I think Lee says something, he, he did this motion, the maraca, he goes, oh, he's talking to that person who doesn't know the marimba. He goes, oh, I bet you thought you were being dragged into like one of these, like, it was going to be like this, you know, like Morocco. <laughs> like, Lee has like, obviously like a wry sense of humor. If you know him, I don't know him personally uh, real well, but I mean, uh, we met a few times, but, but yeah, he's got a wry sense of humor, no doubt about it. <laughs> like, but, uh, but yeah, good point though. Right. I mean, but, but things are a little better now, better than 1988. Better yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, Mo, uh, we've been talking a lot about the Green Brothers, and I think most students are familiar with the Green Brothers, and I can't name how many times someone's seen a video of Teddy Brown top, uh, pop up on some Facebook page and, and sent it my way. So I think most people are familiar with the Green Brothers and Teddy Brown, 
Uh, and then there's, of course, the modern virtuosos like Bob Becker and Jonathan Singer that everyone's familiar with. But who are some of the lesser known ragtime xylophonists that should enter our vocabulary? And maybe what's one or two things notable about each of them? Yeah, so here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> so there were like uh, in the United States, uh, literally hundreds or thousands of people who were playing the xylophone. Some of them were drummers who doubled on xylophone. Some of them just specialized on xylophone. And then when the marimba became viable in the 1920s and 30s, uh, you know, people started doubling on the marimba. So to say, you know, ragtime xylophonist, um, there were, you know, hundreds of musicians who played ragtime on the xylophone and um, certainly not as, as popular as, as the Green Brothers, George Hamilton Green and Joe Green, but there was El Coda, which may have been uh, uh, a pseudonym for uh, Lawrence Coates or Edward Coates, Edward L. Coates. Uh, El Coda was, was someone who performed in vaudeville uh, and played uh, ragtime on the xylophone. Uh, Chris Chapman uh, performed ragtime on the xylophone and, and recorded it. And um, Jess Libanati was a, a vaudevillian who played only the xylophone. He was not a drummer. And he was actually billed as the ragtime xylophonist. So that's Jess Libanati. So th those are some Americans. And then the other thing is uh, uh, today as percussionists, we kind of use the term ragtime to refer to all of the pre-World War II rhythmic xylophone music. And in fact, um, there's also quite a bit of uh, swing jazz that went on. So like Harry Brewer's compositions for the xylophone from the 1930s, like Backtalk and, and so forth, uh, Red Norvo's compositions for the xylophone from the 1930s, uh, that, that was more like swing jazz. So uh, Harry Brewer and Red Norvo weren't really ragtime xylophonists, even though when they were students, they played ragtime on the xylophone. They would play George Hamilton Green's ragtime on the xylophone as students, but the music they played professionally and they wrote uh, was, was more swing jazz. And we might think of that today as part of the ragtime xylophone thing. And it's you know closely linked, it's, it's related. So Harry Brewer, uh, Sammy Herman, uh, Red Norvo, and then uh, one guy that we don't know too much about today was very, very, very uh, musical and influential. It was Ru Rudy Starita, who was uh, uh, an Italian born in Italy who uh, immigrated as a child to the United States. And then he ended up moving in the 1920s to England and had his career in England. So Ru Rudy Starita, who was active in England, uh, you mentioned Teddy Brown. Um, and you know, I could go on, you know, there's literally too many, like we could be here till sun, you know, sunrise tomorrow. Uh, there's just a lot, there's a lot of names. There's a lot of names. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, VAPmedia.com, uh, which is my publisher, uh, has a series of playlists. I think we're up to seven at this point. And one of those playlists is called uh, Ragtime Xylophone. And that playlist has, I believe, 22 uh, ragtime xylophone recordings from pre-World War II, each by a different xylophonist. So that playlist alone, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to market my, you know, myself, but like that, that playlist alone has 22 different xylophonists, all recorded from, from the pre-World War II era, all, xyloph all ragtime music. So there's a, there's a lot there. I was going to mention also, it seems like after the sort of early 20th century ragtime craze in the mid 20th century, there were actually a lot of very prominent female marimba artists. Uh, Vida Chinowith, of course, comes to mind, and also uh, Ruth Stuber, who premiered the Creston Marimba Concertino, as well as Vera Dalen, who I just know the name. I don't really know anything about her. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I, I want to say uh, when I when I used to do my uh, presentation, Marimba and Zyla History Live, which, you know, COVID killed that. So, um, but it's online now, which is good. But when I used to do it live, when I would get to the 1940s Marimba scene in that presentation, uh, I would actually kind of, I would, I would say I would label it this way, but I would always say uh, this is the point where women saved the day for the marimba, you know, because really that next, that first uh, modern generation of marimbas who were students of Clara Musser um, were, were a lot, I want to say they were all women because there was Burton and Jackson. Um, there, there, were, there, were, there, were, there were men as well, but uh, I want to say that, you know, being raised in the United States, being aware of the fact that women have never had the same privilege as men. They've had to fight for that every step of the way. And it kind of is like a badge of honor to me that the marimba in the 1940s uh, was a vehicle where women, I don't want to say it's, it's, it's fair to them to say they had equal rights because they were still struggling, obviously, right? They're still struggling today in some regard, st still waiting for the first American female president, right? But, um, but I'm proud that these women had a, a, a professional vocational avenue via the marimba in the 1940s when it was not common for women to have any professional vocational avenue. So Vida Chenoweth, uh, Vera Dalin, Ruth Jean Stuber, um, uh, um, uh, there's, 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 there's at, least, at least eight to 10 students of Musser's who, who were all, women and did great things like toward there was one group uh that was all female that was at northwestern university in the 1940s under the direction of clam Musa. he didn't perform with it, it called uh the marimba co-eds and it was it had to be called co-eds to justify the fact that females were you know in this organization and um they actually were incredibly professionally talented sophisticated polished chamber music group it was basically a marimba quartet. Uh, so I actually have videos of them performing and the United States government actually sponsored them to do a world tour. And they literally toured 25,000 miles in one year. Not 2,500 miles, I didn't misspeak, 25,000 miles. They took the marimba quartet. Why haven't I ever heard, like, why haven't I heard of this? That's fascinating, that's amazing. Right, yeah, because it only happened in mid, mid 20th century and we're, we're just now at this point getting to the, you know, making this stuff available globally, you know, this information. Changing yeah. pace a bit here. We, we often think of ragtime xylophone history as an American tradition, and we've certainly discussed that quite a bit. Uh, I think that many people are surprised to hear that the xylophone also has a rich history in Japan. Uh, and a friend of mine, uh, Akiko Goto, has written a wonderful dissertation on the artistic life of Japanese xylophone virtuoso Yoichi Hiraoka for whom the uh, Mayazumi Xylophone Concerto was written. Can you tell us some of this uh, history of this instrument, excuse me, some of this instrument's history in Japan? Uh, like, first of all, how did it get there? How did it develop? How has it affected modern playing? Okay, sure. So what happened in Japan is that um, the xylophone showed up in Japan commercially, meaning that companies were selling commercial instruments made by Deegan in America or Japanese companies started manufacturing them in a commercial way. So I say commercially manufactured instruments around 1920 or so. In Japan, um, initially there was two xylophonists, one you mentioned, Ben uh, Yoichi Hiraoka, and also uh, Aichi Asabuki. And those guys were, were born in 1907 and 1909 respectively. And around 1920, 
both of those guys, they didn't know each other personally, but they both just went to a department store and bought manufactured xylophones and began playing them. And then in 1929, uh, Hiroka decided he wanted to come to the United States and make a career in the United States. And so in order to raise money for the trip to the United States, which happened in 1930, uh, in 1929, he started releasing recordings. He went to work in commercial broadcast, um, I'm sorry, commercial phonograph recording studios, making xylophone music on records to be sold. And that gave him money for his immigration trip to the United States. And so those recordings started being shared over there. And also prior to Hiraoka recording on the xylophone in Japan, uh, it was common practice for rec phonograph records, which in the 19 teens were the dominant form uh, of music entertainment worldwide, okay? Uh, American phonograph record companies would license their, their recordings all over the globe. So uh, in my collection, I have many recordings that were manufactured or produced or recorded in the United States around World War I, 1920s and 30s, a little later. And then I also have those same pressings on different record companies from England and Europe and Japan. I have a recording from 1926 of George Hamilton Green that was released on the Columbia Phonograph Record Company in, in the United States and then licensed to Japan. And I have the Jap Japanese pressing from a few years later in the 20s. So, so I know for a fact that recordings by the American xylophonist William Wrights and George Hamilton Green were heard by Hiraoka and Asabuki at that time, okay? So the Americans had their influence with the recordings uh, and also just the fact that Japan was manufacturing xylophones at all was due to two things. Uh, Japan was just always very sophisticated with manufacturing, very, very advanced society over there. And they had a tendency pre-World War II to emulate and, and, and copy the United States. So when Deegan was making xylophones and Leedy was making xylophones, they noticed those things and they were very good at manufacturing. So then eventually they're manufacturing their own instruments too. Now, uh, Aichi Asabuki stayed in Japan, uh, Hiroka left. And so as Americans, I'm an American, uh, we, we know more about Hiroka to a certain extent. Uh, here in the West, we might not know about Asabuki, but in Japan, Asabuki was the governing influence. He was the galvan galvanizing factor. He became quite a pedagogue and pretty much uh, through like the 1960s, anybody who studied marimba in Japan or xylophone, but first it was a xylophone, but then when it became that the marimba was the dominant instrument more than the xylophone, they all studied with Asabuki. Uh, I believe Keko Abe also studied with Asabuki. So, so he was pivotal. There were other xylophonists in the 1930s, um, Shige Shigeo uh, Shimuzu, Sadio uh, Iway that, that, that recorded. I have their recordings in my collection. So, uh, so that was like the genesis of it right there. And then um, in the 1940s, uh, the marimba arrived in, in Japan in the form of this uh, tour uh, by two musicians who were married, Lawrence and Mildred LaCour, who had been members of Claire Musser's International Marimba Symphony Orchestra, which is the, the King George Marimbas of 1935. And uh, these people were evangelicals, Christian evangelicals. So they wanted to go to Japan and do like a Christian evangelical tour. And they wanted to use marimba music because that's what they did. They played marimba as well uh, as the vehicle for that. So they toured Japan many times, like in the late 1940s, early 1950s. That's how Kako Abe saw her first marimba 
was attending a concert by the, the Lacour Evangelical uh, Crusade, I think they called it, which was a marimba trio with two King George, beautiful King George Farrakh and marimbas and a, and a bass marimba. So, so then, then the marimba was in Japan. And once again, Japan is very good at manufacturing, very advanced culture, and they pay attention to influence, influences like that. And then next thing you know, Yamaha, and, 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 and then the Jap Japan Xylophone Association was formed, a sabuki was instrument, instrumental. It's kind of like a, a PAS for the xylophone in Japan, something like that, which is still in existence today. So that's, uh, you know, trying to condense it all, but that's, 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 that's a, little, a, little, a little chunk there of, of what went on. Yeah, and I, I was looking at Akiko's dissertation. It sounds like maybe Keiko Abe just took one lesson with Asabuki. It's kind of hard to say. It says he didn't normally teach at home, but somehow Keiko Abe did take a lesson with him. I don't know if they continued beyond that, but at the very least, there was definitely contact. She was definitely very aware of his playing, I think it's safe to say. And I bet you, but I don't mean to interrupt, but I bet you Rebecca Kite knows the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I kind of was Googling and trying to find something, and I found an article called History of Marimba in Japan Before Keiko Abe by uh, Maki Takafuchi. Uh, so, I, yeah, I'm sure there's there's more to the story than, than I'm aware of. <laughs> um, but, well, Dave, thanks so much for your time. And we had one last question for you, and that is that you have produced a course on marimba and xylophone history for Norm Weinberg's VAP Media. Can you tell us about this course, both your sort of background of your preparation, which it sounds like has gone back to the 1970s, really, and also what students can expect out of this course? Yeah, so uh, this course, like you said, is, is online at vapmedia.com. It's called Marimba and Xylophone History. Short and sweet, marimba and xylophone history. So marimba and xylophone history, and what it is, it's, it's a, an online course. So you go to vapmedia.com and you enroll in that course for a small fee. And then uh, I believe it, it works that you have access to the course material for maybe six weeks or so. And um, a lot of times college percussion departments, you know, their, their teacher will enroll the entire class in it and then you get a discounted rate and they use it for class material. And what it is, is it's uh, six hours long and it's divided into 10 chapters. So we start, it's all basically chronologically. So chapter one is the earliest, you know, historical information and it's a multimedia presentation. So it's not just me sitting here in front of a camera, go, you know, droning on. I think, you know, I guess the cat's out of the bag. I like to talk on and on now that we're into our Zoom, but, uh, but uh, it's not just me staring at a camera droning on for six hours. So it's multimedia and what does that mean? So there are videos of, of old performances, there are recordings, there are photographs, there are sheet music. And so it's not my face on the screen uh, most of the time. Most of the time it's the media that, that is the video content or the audio content that I narrate. So I narrate the material. And so uh, it covers the xylophone and the marimba. It's historically uh, chronologically arranged into 10 chapters. And then you access it at, at vapmedia.com. Well, David, one more question for you. Uh, could you tell us about your personal collection, uh, both of instruments, I'm assuming you have some historical instruments, and maybe a few highlights of your other materials? Yeah, so uh, I don't necessarily collect instruments per se. I do, I play the marimba and I collect the memorabilia, but I don't really have uh, what you would consider an instrument collection. So, uh, but I do have a couple Deegan Imperial four octave marimbas from the 1930s. And that's what I play. That's why I have them. So I play, I play marimba and I de generally play melodic marimba, which means 
I, I play a four octave range with either, you know, some type of accompaniment or ensemble or combo, right? So, so uh, I have a couple old Deegans for that reason. I also have a couple uh, very rare 19th century xylophones. One is a German four row continental xylophone made by the Auto Seal Company. And then an even rarer uh, instrument made in the 1870s to 1890s in America, which is a diatonic, no, I'm sorry, a two row chromatic American uh, so-called straw xylophone. So both of those instruments, the German one and the American one date to the 19th century. And they're called straw xylophones because the wooden bars rest on belts of straw, believe it or not. Ksenia was actually just asking us uh, like in our group chat a few days ago, has anyone seen a straw fiddle before? So there you go. <laughs> so, so uh, and, then, and then in my career, when I was younger, I went through many vintage, I, I bought and sold many, many vintage marimbas and xylophones. And so, um, you know, at one point I owned a five octave artist special xylophone. Uh, I owned a two or three, four and a half octave Leedy xylorimbas or xylophone marimbas. I owned Leedy xylophones, other, other uh, Deegan uh, marimbas. Uh, so, you know, I went, I went through a period when I was uh, learning where I was trying vintage instruments because I liked the vintage rosewood at the time. And uh, some of those instruments have brass resonators. So I have owned at times, you know, many vintage instruments, but now I just own my Deegan marimbas and then the, uh, the two antique xylophones, which are just so rare. Uh, th those might end up at Kutztown University at some point, but we'll see about that. And then, and then uh, beyond the instruments, uh, yeah, my, I have- Wait, a, can, Do you play the four octave xylophone? Like, are you skilled in the, the different uh, configuration? I, I'm, not, I'm not skilled in it. I can play it because, you know, I have hands, but- yeah. um, I'm not skilled in it. It's it's a different keyboard layout, and then the technique is kind of fun. It's like it's like spoon-shaped wooden mallets, and you play it with your thumbs facing the ceiling. So it's kind of uh, similar to a zither or a cymbalum uh, thing. And so that instrument was probably made originally in the 19th uh, century uh, as an imitation of the cymbalum. So it's like similar technically with the, the stroking to a cymbalum, the hammering. And, and then um, are, are those rosewood or do you know what kind of wood they are? That particular one is rosewood. Sometimes they were also maple, uh, both in Europe and in the United States. Sometimes they were maple, sometimes they, they were rosewood. Those two instruments that I'm referring to are, are both rosewood. Well, this is cool. We've referenced the symbol on two episodes in a row now. Okay. Maybe That's we can make record. it three. <laughs> But sorry, I think you were, you were starting to tell us something about the, the non-instrument things in your collection. Oh, yeah. So, so in my home, I have a library that's exclusively, you know, marimba xylophone history. And um, granted, I've been collecting this stuff since the 1970s. So I have um, thousands, many thousands of 70 RPM uh, records of the xylophone or marimba. I have many hundreds of cylinder recordings and um, just we mentioned this earlier in the discussion, cylinder recordings that came up. I didn't really explain it. So a cylinder phonograph record uh, is a, uh, it's shaped like the cardboard tube on the inside of a roll of toilet paper. And then the grooves go around the outside of the, of the tube. So when I say a cylinder phonograph record, it's something like that. And then, uh, so, so thousands of disc rec recordings, hundreds of cylinder recordings, and then I own antique wind-up phonographs to play them on. And then I also have um, sheet music, uh, you know, a lot of vintage sheet music of, of many, many, many publishers and eras and styles. And then I also have uh, what I call source material. I have 
thousands of, of antique photographs, antique newspaper clippings, uh, postcards with photographs, uh, uh, instrument catalogs from the, uh, the Deegan and Leedy and uh, many other companies, uh, you know, Musser, early Musser company, many companies that manufactured instruments, uh, magazine articles, uh, original manuscripts, original letters, correspondence. And, and uh, one thing I did when I was collecting this stuff, I still collect, but um, you know, I, when I was networking, uh, a lot of times families of deceased percussionists would give me their, their whole collection, you know? So there's like written correspondence, there's private things, you know? So, uh, and this, again, this is an entire room in my home that I call the library. And um, my wife has a sense of humor about it and um, letting, letting me have that room for the library. I hesitated to ask. <laughs> so it's pretty funny because, um, uh, you know, at one, one time, uh, not too long ago, within the last, I don't know, a decade or so, um, uh, the family of Salvi Gavicchio, Salvi Gavicchio was a, a xylophonist and marimbist. And he, he was the first marimba teacher at a university in the United States at the New England Conservatory of Music. He, he began teaching marimba there in the 1930s. And he was Vic Firth's mallet teacher when Vic Firth was a student at the New England Conservatory. And that family knew me and I, I have that material. And then, um, and Salvi Gavicchio passed away in the 1990s. And then about 10 years ago, I got a call from his family saying, oh, you know, we're selling the home, my parents' home. Uh, and, um, and we found in the attic, like, like a dozen marimbas and xylophones and we don't know what to do with them. So they said, um, the home's already sold. We already have the, like the papers assigned and we have a junk man who's coming here literally in like three days. And anything that's not out of that house in three days is going to the junkyard. We have like a flat fee. So I'm like, oh, okay, well I can't let those, you know, go to the junkyard. So I spent the next three days, like there was literally like a dozen, like there was huge, like a four and a half octave Deegan Imperial Marimba, four octave Imperial Marimba, three and a half octave, all kinds of Deegan xylophones, glocks, pits, like everything. Like, and so uh, fortunately, fortunately, uh, my wife was at a family reunion at the time. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I had a deadline and the, and the reunion was in a different part of the country. So she was away for a few days. I mean, I guess better for her to come home to Rosewood smell than some other woman's perfume. <laughs> well, being that I'm a wise married man, uh, I, I, I took that as a deadline. Okay, she gets home on whatever it was. She gets home on Thursday. I better have this mess cleaned up by Thursday. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't walk in my home. And, uh, and, the, and unfortunately, the family of Salvi Gavicchio, um, before I got to the house, they took, they didn't know that how you unpack a xylophone or marimba. They thought you take the rope, the cord out of the bars to, to transport it. So they went to, <laughs> and got like a dozen huge plastic totes and just fill them up with loose rosewood bars. And it wasn't like this marimba went in this tote. No, it was just like, <laughs> oh my God. Whoa. Orchard. So I had like the, 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 the Rubik's cube, the rosewood Rubik's cube from hell in my home. <laughs> and I had, and the clock's ticking. Cause if my wife gets home, you couldn't walk. I mean, like every room was covered, the floor, the stairwell and the stair, the kitchen, the couches, like you could, I had to like, do a you know like a tiptoe to get through the living room and i'm like you know i i got this like puzzle from hell i got two and a half two two days and 18 hours to figure this shit out right so, so, <laughs> so, so, so 
so I'm, I'm like trying to piece together. I got like four Deegan 870 xylophones, but for some reason I have like four and two thirds keyboards. <laughs> it's like, you know, so, and I'm caught and I don't want the stuff. Like I, I don't, I'm not going to play this, these instruments. I have my, my the instruments I want. I have no room for anything else. So then I'm making calls all day. Hey, you know, do you want this instrument? Do you want this instrument? I'll sell it cheap. I'll sell it cheap. I'll sell it. You know, you got me at the right time. You know, she comes home tomorrow, you know, so, 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 so uh, yeah. So stuff happens. Right. So, uh, yeah. It was hilarious. That I cried. Might be, that <laughs> might be the most amazing story we've ever had on the podcast. <laughs> <I know. laughs> yeah. And, and in the end, I don't think I slept. That, that was the funny thing. I don't think I slept. I literally was like pulling all nighters night after night trying to figure it out and piece them together and get one, you know, and then, and then in the end, I did get rid of them all uh, with the help of my sister who there was two instruments I still couldn't get rid of after the end of three days. And I called my sister, Hey, can I stick these in your basement? You know? And, and, and then I eventually I found, you know, takers for those too. So. Sounds so, like a very niche episode of hoarders. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reformed though. That's so that's good. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, that was amazing. Okay, I'll definitely edit that in. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great story. Oh, God. Ooh, it's going to take me a while to recover from that one. Uh, well, thank you so much, David, for your generous time today. It's been wonderful looking back at percussion history. And we will see everyone on episode 316.